Well, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32. As you're turning there, weeks ago in our class, my wife has the, the unique ability to, to be able to humble her husband. She asked a question I didn't know. Anyone remember what that question was? Well, I don't feel quite so bad now. The question was, how long was it from when Moses brought the Jews out of Egypt to the time of Isaiah? And part of the reason for that is we said, you know, they should be believing God's prophet, but they aren't. They had forgotten God. They had forgotten his wondrous works among them. And the answer to the question is roughly 800 to 850 years. There were about two or three people that looked that up and, and let me know that. So they were watching to make sure that I, I covered that. Uh, but history is not my, my strong suit, so I have to go research stuff like that. And um, Isaiah is reminding them of some of these things, but he's also pointing them to the future and Messiah to come. We've been in Isaiah for a while. We're in chapters 28 through 33, which is the prophecies of woes, at least the way that we've divided it up and organized it to try and understand it. We've already covered 28 and 29, where it talks about the foolish leaders and their false counsel. And during that time, they're kind of insinuating about going down to Egypt. But it's not stated bluntly. In 30 and 31, it started to become more blunt. Don't go down to Egypt. You're not safe going down to Egypt. And the reason you're not safe is when God's judgment comes, it's not only going to come upon the Jewish people for their rejection of the Messiah and the Messiah's um, promise to save them, but it's going to come upon the Gentile nations. And so now we're in the section where it starts to talk about the true solution, which is Messiah. They need to trust Messiah. Over and over again, the theme of Isaiah is trust God, specifically trust Messiah. And so we're in chapter 32 and 33. We've started 32. When we get to 33, we're going to see the next woe. And so we started with the righteous rulers and what do they look like? And we kind of skipped around a little bit. So let's reread chapter 32 verses 1 through 8 just to get acclimated again. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 32, Isaiah reads, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and a prince shall rule in judgment. A man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, a culvert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of them that <clears throat> see shall not be dim. And the ears of them that hear shall, shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge. The tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile person shall no more be called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. 
For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instrument also of the churl are instruments also of the churl are evil. He deviseth wicked things to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speak right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. And so as we read this, part of what we discussed several weeks ago was the fact that some of these words that are used here aren't exactly common words to us. But Isaiah is starting out, and he's actually building a contrast here. The contrast is between a king, and by the way, the commentaries are split on, is this a king really Messiah, or is it just a king? Um, My conclusion personally is, I think Isaiah is just saying, during this time when God's going to set things right, there will be rulers throughout the land. God, Messiah will set up a millennial kingdom, but it's going to span such a large place that there will be other rulers, and this is a king. Kurt? If he had said the king, I think it would have been a little more okay. precise as to who. Yeah. Kurt brings up a good point, and that is if it said the king, and by the way, previews of coming attractions in chapter 33, it does say the king, but it's talking different than this part right here. But I agree with Kurt. It says a king, and so I take this to be the civil rulers. Now, we covered a few things about them. First of all, we covered the fact that Part of their rule and part of what they're going to accomplish is they're going to protect from the wind and storms of life. And I think we've seen recently some pretty serious storms, as in weather storms, but there's also other storms in life. But specifically when you talk about the weather, uh, some rulers plan ahead and they prepare for what comes after the storm has passed. And we've seen that in recent days. That's what these kings and rulers will help do, is prepare and protect from the storms of life. And then we covered the fact that they refresh people. It talks about the water here, rivers of water in a dry place. I don't know about you, but there's times when my mouth gets thirsty. And it's the most inopportune times and you're sitting there and your, your tongue is kind of smacking around because it's wanting some water. That's the idea that this passage is bringing up in these first couple verses is these rulers are like just excellent refreshment at just the right time when you need it. And so he's contrasting the good rulers. But we come to verses 3 and 4 and we didn't discuss them much last time. What do you think the message is that Isaiah is trying to get across in these two verses? I'll reread them. It says, And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, 
And the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the wrath shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. What do you think he's trying to communicate in those two verses? Bobby? I think Bobby's starting to get us to the right path here. She mentions the fact that is it that they're now on the right path, whereas previously they weren't? And I think there's, there's a hint of that as to what's going on here. How do they get on the right path, though? The exactly, the righteous leaders. And so you add that to what Bobby said first. The righteous leaders, by their example, by how they speak, by how they give glory to God, bring about a change or transformation in the people. And so what you see is Isaiah is highlighting the righteous rulers. He's highlighting what they do, which is they're going to protect, they're going to refresh, and in doing what they do, the results amongst the people is the fact that they're going to see, they're going to hear, they're going to understand, they're even going to be able to speak clearly. Um, I don't know about you, but this, this past year or two, I've, I've learned a new phrase. I had never heard it before until the last year or two. And that is that someone has uh, given you a word salad. Anyone hear that phrase before? Word salad? It's where they give you a bunch of words, but you don't have a clue at the end what they said and what it means. Um, I'd never heard that phrase used before. Well, when I was reading this, that's what popped in my mind is, you know, you have unrighteous rulers and a lot of what they say doesn't make sense. And you have righteous rulers and hopefully because of that, things do make sense. I was looking at how... How can I point to an example of this? And unfortunately, I feel there's so much angst in politics, it's not wise to even use politics and politicians, even though some may be good and some are definitely bad. But I had a flashback. I had a flashback to when I was working for a living and I think many of you know that Ken Stoddart back in the back sound room, he and I worked together for over 34 years. Well, what you don't probably know is we had the same boss over our department for our, a little over 20 of those years. And I was thinking about him because of conversation. And I think it's worth kind of sharing a little bit about that. I did also find out in the past week or two that our former manager director of our department passed away because of COVID last August, which was very sad for Ken and I. But the conversation that caused me to think of him was when Ken and I first were green engineers, fresh out of college a few years, they they had a department with a couple of department secretaries. 
And when our boss, his name was Bill, so I'll, I'll just use his name. When Bill came in, one of the secretaries had gotten a four-year degree, and Bill went out of his way to help her find a job. And that's okay. That, that's noble. I was impressed with that, that he would go to that effort. But what struck me was what happened about 15 years later. Fifteen years later, this same lady that had gotten a four-year degree that Bill had helped ended up coming back into our department. And she was coming in, instead of as the department secretary, as an entry-level clerk. And I was the person hiring her. And I was feeling kind of uncomfortable would be my put it mildly that here she had went got her degree and came full circle back and wasn't even coming in at the same level with you know probably um, would have gotten better pay if she was the, the department secretary and I was just talking with her about that and this is in summary, what she said back, she said something about, Tom, you don't know what it's like out there. I've been in a couple other departments. And she said, Bill, Ken, and you set a tone in this department that make it a pleasant place to work. Now, I don't say that to toot my own horn. She had all three of us grouped together. And I believe Bill was a Christian man you know, as best as I could know. But because all three of us were Christians and our Christian values constrained us to behave in a Christ-like manner, she saw the difference. And so I thought, hopefully that brings a real live example of what Isaiah is talking about here. The rulers, because they're righteous and godly, are going to set a tone. They're going to protect the people that they are ruling over. They're going to refresh them. But even the people that they are ruling over are going to be transformed. They're going to speak and see and hear clearly with clarity. And... It's not unique to Isaiah. I told you I was having some flashbacks. There was an article in Quality Digest, October 2004. And you're probably thinking, I can't believe this guy keeps some of this stuff. But this was an article on leadership. And look at the points that he brings out. There's four of them. Clarity, which is what we would call vision. Communication which is pretty obvious. Credibility, which we might use the word integrity. And character, which also ties to integrity. And this is a secular article. Don't know anything about the guy, but that's what he saw in leadership. Leadership, when it's constrained by God's righteousness, is going to bring about all those things. Um, we're shown in, in the New Testament where 
Jesus taught his disciples servant leadership. If you're going to be great amongst the children of God, you're going to be a servant to all. Interestingly enough, spiritual clarity and perception always follows submission to God's ways. And that's the whole issue of what Isaiah is trying to get across. Submit to God, trust God, and because of your obedience, you all of a sudden see things with a clarity you didn't see before because God will open your eyes to why he wants you to do things. He won't always answer why things happen in your life, but he will give us clarity and give us perception on seeing him through the eyes of faith. Now, I went through all of that. I tried to do it fairly fast because Isaiah presents the case of the godly righteous rulers. And then he contrasts that with the less than righteous ones. Um, back to the opposite. And so we see the fool and the scoundrel. And which one's the fool and which one's the scoundrel? When you read verses 5 through 8 and you, you look at the two phrases, one says the vile person and the other one says the churl. Which one is the fool and which one is the scoundrel? Nancy? Okay, so we had jumped ahead a little bit because of the word churl. It's not one we use very much. Which one is worse? The vile person slash fool or the scoundrel slash churl? Okay, now that's a safe answer. Well, they're probably equally bad. Um, churl. Okay, I got one vote for churl. Do I have a vote for the fool? <laughs> You'll go with churl too. If you look at scripture, it tells you. Okay. Verse 7. Okay. It says, His weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander. Even though the needy one speaks what is right. Okay. So just reading the context, I would say the, the people that are voting for Churl probably have the upper hand here. But one of the things that's a little bit deceptive is, what does the Bible say throughout Scripture about some of these words? Nabal is the word for fool. Nabal's a Hebrew word. It typically is the words that are used in its place are stupid, wicked, fool, vile. And I would say that as you read scripture, if you recognize that word in other places, it's probably one of the most negative words in the Bible to describe a person. Um, so I think there's a case to be had where someone that might vote, have voted for fool um, 
might have a, a little bit of an upper hand if you look throughout Scripture. The other word, churl, the Hebrew word or Greek word, and I'm not, now that I'm thinking about, I'm not sure which one I really grabbed because I use the strongest concordance. I don't read Hebrew and Greek, most of us don't. But the, the word that it pointed me to is this K-I-Y-L-A-Y, and it's translated churl, miser, scoundrel, rogue, rude, mean-spirited, you know, and those aren't good either. So, I mean, whichever way you voted, you weren't in bad company. Both of these type guys are bad. And Isaiah is building for us here a contrast. He's just painted a picture of here's what a righteous ruler looks like. And now he comes along and he says, and this is what the fool or the vile, the wicked, the rude, the mean-spirited, these two groups of people, here's what they look like. And so we have the fool and the scoundrel. Okay? The fool is no longer viewed as liberal. We would translate that better today as noble. When you hear the word liberal, what do you think of? Okay, you immediately go to politics and you think of people that want to basically do away with all the Christian constraints and all the other things. And so you read this and it's basically this vile, evil, wicked person is no longer a liberal. He became a conservative then, right? Okay, and it doesn't fit. And so, I don't know about you, but, you know, we'll try and strip a gear trying to reconcile those unless we go in and we look at what's it really saying. And it's really saying they're no longer going to be viewed as noble. And that makes a big difference. And that's why sometimes it's very important that we be careful that we don't overstate our case on translations. It's good to go from an older translation where the words are totally different than what we use today to one that's modern, that's a word-for-word -word translation, and double-check, do I really understand this passage? Wayne, I think you had something, too. If you took the word liberal and applied it today, instead of looking at politics, I'd say liberal could easily mean anti-Christian. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you take it out of the context of Politics, you think of someone that's liberal as being someone that is not constrained as much. They're, they're kind of, um, what'd you say, Kurt? Permissive. Permissive. Um, but also, when you think about someone being liberal, um, even in our reading of Scripture, when Paul talks about giving, he uses the idea of giving generously or liberally. Uh, so, I mean, it, it really makes it difficult because of all the variations of how we could use the word. But noble, I think, hits a common idea for us. When we look at leaders, 
we would like to think that how they go about business is better than the average. It's a more noble way of behaving themselves. Um, but again, a lot of it's the context of what we've grown up with. Bobby, I think you had something too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the l idea of liberal, Bobby brings up James 1, verse 5, if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it to us liberally. So it makes it hard when you look at this, you basically say, okay, the vile person is no longer going to be called liberal. In other words, people are going to see the difference between the righteous ruler and this evil person, and they're basically going to say, uh-uh, there's a big difference. There's no way. And just to stay out of the political parties, but to highlight politics slightly, I am baffled how we vote as people. Because there are news stories that come out about all sorts of evils about someone and that person wins the election. And I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, what are they thinking? I don't get it. But when Christ rules and reigns, people will get it. They will rejoice over the righteous rulers and the fact no one's going to call this evil person generous and noble and then you have the scoundrel and he's no longer said to be bountiful which honorable is probably the best word we would use today when we read bountiful we we look and i don't know about you but i don't draw all the right conclusions when i read this phrasing but if i think about this churl, scoundrel, mean-spirited person, they're no longer going to be viewed as someone that's honorable. And so Isaiah has built the case for the righteous. He's now told us about two different groups of people. And these two different groups of people that really aren't qualified to be rulers are no longer going to be viewed as noble and as honorable. I liked what one particular commentary said. It said, in every society, there are those that have managed to gain power. And they're treated as great and deserving persons regardless of their true character. Because the underlings are afraid of the power. It's seen in our history of our country more often in other countries, but in recent days as our culture has turned from being a predominantly Christian value-based culture to now a humanistic uh, forsaking God culture, we're seeing it also in our society. There are people that are elected into positions of great authority and power. And when they're there, people say all sorts of good things that aren't true. 
about them because they're afraid of the power that they hold. And so we have this contrast. We have the righteous, and then we have the evil or vile person, and we have the churl. Another comment I thought was kind of interesting, probably should have mentioned it earlier, the fool is one of the strongest negative words in the Bible. The churl isn't viewed nearly as strong, I think, as how much this Nabal fool word is. The Old Testament depicts a person who's consciously rejected God's ways and they've chosen the way of death. I think most of us might remember Psalm 14, verse 1. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And if you think about which is worse, is the vile person that's the fool worse? Or is the churl that's the scoundrel and mean-spirited and evil worse? I think the one that denies God is in the worst case. Now, maybe they may not be as bad as the other person in human eyes, but the fact that they deny God and they say there is no God, they basically are definitely, in my book, the more seriously evil of the two. Um, Even though they may not behave that way, one other quote that I'll read to you from one of the commentaries. It says, The fool's folly is more disastrous because its short-term result may make God's way appear wrong. The psalmist says this in Psalm 73, that he looked and he saw the way of the wicked and it was prosperous. And he envied him until he went to the sanctuary and he realized their end. That's the same thing that Isaiah is trying to contrast here. We have this evil person, we have this churl person, and they both have some problems. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to quickly look at what does each of these groups of people look like. So we're going to start with, what do the fools do? And by the way, it's an open book test. It's verses 5 through 8. And anyways, you see vile person, tell me what they do. Okay, so the first thing that we note is he speaks folly, folly. Um, The word villainy and folly go hand in hand. What else does the the fool do? Okay, he practices ungodliness. And I would say, you know, the, the phrase that Wayne picked up on was his heart is working iniquity. So that's that practice of ungodliness. What else does he do? Practices 
Okay, he practices hypocrisy. His ways are ungodliness, but it's hypocrisy. And so you see hypocrisy routinely in this type of person. What else? Devises wicked ways. Okay, he devises wicked ways. I'm not going to give you the next bullet until you hit it, you know, find, pardon me? He, he oppresses people. Okay, he oppresses people, and we skipped one right in between there. He utters error against the Lord. Okay, this one to me should just raise our eyebrows, if not, you know, our radar about, hey, I don't want to be anywhere near this guy because he speaks wrongly about God. Um, it's one thing to be a teacher or preacher and make an honest mistake where you overemphasize a point about God. And that does happen. You know, we have to be careful that how we view God stays balanced. And the best way to stay balanced is we just keep our eyes on Jesus and we point people to Jesus. The worst thing we can do is get our eyes off Jesus and we'll either overemphasize his sovereignty or we'll overemphasize the idea of, well, a loving God won't do what's righteous and just. But when you look to Jesus, all of that comes into balance. Yes, God's sovereign. And yes, God provided a way where we could be made right with him by sending his only begotten son. And you see that clearly when you look at Jesus. The fool says there's no God right out of the chutes. And then he comes along and he speaks all sorts of really blasphemies about God. And we see that today in our society. And I don't know about you, but for me, it grieves my heart to see how badly. Um, I remember in the 70s, a preacher saying, what used to be kept in the closets parading down Main Street, USA. And it's even worse today. Yep. And so... The reality is, is this fool lives their life the way that they think, and that is that there is no God, that there's not going to be a judgment. But the truth is, there will be a judgment. And when that judgment comes, it's going to be not necessarily in this life, but you know, we know from Hebrews it says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment but in the meantime, it's hard to watch because they are blaspheming my Lord and Savior who gave himself and loved me so much that he pulled me out of this kind of quagmire that's there. And so adding the last one, this is what fools do. They speak folly or villainy. Their heart works iniquity. Their ways are ungodly and hypocritical. They speak wrongly about God, which to me is one of the most serious offenses. And he leaves the people deprived of their needs and empty. And we won't say much about 
how much politicians fall in this boat, but there's a lot of them that sadly do. And hopefully I get people laughing because I'm not endorsing a party. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't divide that way. The reality is, is we have some people in politics, in civil government, that are devout Christians, but they're the minority. And then we have a lot of others that you look at this list of what the fool does, and some of them live up to this list, sadly. So that brings us then to the scoundrel. <clears throat> some like the word the churl, okay? And, and it is definitely not a word that I use very often. I, I learned some things when I first heard that word. And the question is, what does the churl do? We saw pretty easily what the fool did. He devises wicked schemes. Okay, he goes about, he devises wicked schemes. There's one before, before that. Wayne hit number two. What's number one? Okay, so he goes about doing evil. And so we have these people that go around and they do evil. And it's not hard to tell what evil looks like. We see it all too often where people are stealing, they're killing. You know, all of those things are evil. And then, as Wayne put it, he, he not only does evil, but he schemes about it. Um... It's one thing to plan and to plan ahead to take care of your family or to take care of what you need, but it's a whole other level when your plans involve doing wicked, evil things. And there's people that do that. Um, I hope you don't know very many of them. I hang around with a crowd that I don't think does that. And so when I come across it, in fact, um, since I had some flashbacks and shared with you about one of my bosses I worked for for 20 years and he exhibited Christ-like qualities that this secretary knew while I worked for another boss. And he came out with You've seen the bracelets, what would Jesus do? Well, he had some other acronym. And I just, you know, he drew a blank stare from me. And he eventually said to me, he said, Tom, this acronym means what's in it for me. And there's a lot of people that live that way. And he eventually realized that that wasn't registering with me. And I can honestly stand before you and say, I'm glad it didn't. But the reason it didn't is because of God's word and God's people. And if I hung around with a worldly crowd, that probably would have registered with me. Here, you look at this, and he talks about the scoundrels. They do evil, they scheme about doing evil, wicked things. 
And by the way, what's in it for me isn't in and of itself evil, it's just selfish. And it leads to doing evil things when that's our motivation. Nancy, did you want to say something? Well, I was going to sort of answer your next upcoming question. Okay. He's a liar. Okay. So Nancy said, okay, let's get back on track, and thank you for doing that. That's a good thing. He speaks lying words, and it's not just that he lies. He lies and harms those that are most in need. Kurt has his hand up. Yes, sir. Uh, those two lies together, really the needy is right, he justice to the poor. Okay. I could have put another bullet up there because Kurt's 100% right. He deprives the poor of justice. They have a, a just cause, and he comes in and he paints the picture to defame them where their credibility and their cause ends up being dismissed. And so he basically lies and perverts the truth and doesn't do what's right. Paul? I would say that scammers fall in these categories. He has a good point, and we all can relate to what he just brought up. The scammers fall into this category. They have an evil scheme, and their scheme is to somehow find a way to take the money that typically senior citizens have spent a lifetime collecting so that when they have needs and they're older and can't earn money, they have that money salted away to help make life a little easier as they face the hardships of older age. And who comes along? A scammer that schemes to take that money and they don't care the damage they do to the people that's, that they're doing it to. And so we have here this very interesting thing that Isaiah has done. He's basically said the solution is Messiah. But let's paint the picture first of what the millennial kingdom is going to look like under Messiah. And in summary... The noble person is going to plan and act in a noble way. The rulers that are righteous are going to rule the land. And when people see them, they're basically... Um, and the person that came to my mind was Boaz. When you read the book of Ruth, it talks about his workers calling him blessed or, or blessing him because of the type of person he was. And so in the millennial kingdom, the noble person's going to act in a noble way and people are going to recognize it. They're going to see that and know that that person is noble. Secondly, that person, his character is generous and good-hearted. If you look at how he provides for those he rules over, he protects, he refreshes, he's generous, he's good-hearted. And then he sees God's generosity in his own life. And because he sees God's generosity, he mirrors that. Now, we don't live in the millennial kingdom. We might wish we did. 
and i know there were times in america where things were getting better and better and some people had some ideas that you know this was close to the millennial kingdom i got news for you it wasn't even even scratching the surface But this is how God expects you and I to behave as his children right now. We belong to the king of kings. We're part of his kingdom that is not a physical kingdom, but is rather a spiritual kingdom where we are a kingdom of priests before the Lord. And we're built up into a holy temple of of being living stones that God is building for himself and he looks at you and I and he says okay this is what it's going to look like in the future but this is what you should be looking like right now and we miss the mark I do I know you see things in your life where you say oh I wish I didn't do that um But as we see the contrast, hopefully God works in our heart where our desire is to be like the righteous rulers. Wayne, I think you had something you wanted to say too. We tend to forget that we're made in the image of God and we should reflect that. Yep. We're made in God's image and we should be a reflection of that. We don't have time to start the next section, but I'm going to introduce the next section. Um... If you look up at verse 9, it says, Rise up, ye women, there at ease. And you're going to see that phrase throughout this passage. Isaiah is not trying to pick on women. Okay, just figure out, set that score straight right from the start. Um, interestingly enough, when I first was reading this chapter, this section caused me to scratch my head. I was like, we go from righteous rulers and contrasting to the fools and the churl and and we go to these women that are at ease. And then I remembered the same boss that I told you about earlier and he, he taught me something early on when we were uh, starting to work together. He said, Tom, you need, when you have to deal with something negative and discipline, you need to remember the Oreo. I'm like, the Oreo, you know, and he said, yeah, the Oreo, he said, you sandwich the bad message of the discipline issue that you're going to do with something good on the top, something good on the bottom, and so that was the Oreo, and by the way, um, as funny as it sounds, I see some of you chuckling a little bit, and that's fine, Um, the first time I heard it, I was kind of scratching my head, But it really did make a difference because what happens is when someone, when you're pointing out what they're doing wrong and you want them to change, human nature wants to bow up and and argue. But if you start out where you tell them something that you see in them that's virtuous and good and then you talk about something that's not quite so good and then you end on a good note. Um, there were several times where I used the Oreo 
And the person that I talked with afterward even thanked me. And that just kind of amazed me because I know human nature isn't normally that way. Isaiah here is using an Oreo. He told him something good. Now, he also contrasted the villain and you know, the, the vile person and the churl. But then he goes into this group of people. And by the way, I don't think it just has to be ladies that are at ease. He happened to choose that. I can't answer why. But I think we need to make sure that we look at it in a more generic way. But he's basically going to be reprimanding them for some of their behavior. And so be looking at that as we go throughout this next week. Look at what's he reprimanding them about. And what is the characteristics of this group? And that's what we'll be covering next week is verses 9 through verses 14. And if we're fast enough, we might go further. Okay, we're out of time. Thank you for your participation and your attention. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we again give thanks for the fact that you loved us enough that you would send your only begotten Son to die on a cross that we might have peace with you and be saved from our sins and forgiven of our sins. Father, we pray for the service that we're about to go into. We pray that Christ would be exalted. And Father, as we study your word, help us to mirror our Lord and Savior and what people see in our lives. So easy for us to let our fleshly nature have foothold and for us not to be what you want us to be so as we read your word help us to be conformed to our lord and savior which is your will for our life and we pray that as we go into this worship service we would honor him and exalt him in jesus name amen